welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast. Today, I've got something special for you. It's the season where we look back. You know, we're at the beginning of a new year. What a lot of people do is they look back and do a, a review of the year that has just gone by. Of course, we're also at the beginning of a new decade, depending on how you count. Some sticklers would say that's not until next year. But anyway, we're, we're at a, another big round number. So a lot of people are doing a, a decade review. We on the show, though, sort of do a decade review every year. It's become a tradition over the past few years to look back not at the last year, but 10 years ago. And so this year, we're going to be looking back at the year 2010. But as it turns out, looking back 10 years is not the only tradition that I have started. I've got another tradition that I didn't even realize I was starting. And it, uh, well, let me play this for you. This is from not the regular show, but the bonus show for members that went out with last year's retrospective. This is how I introduced the bonus retrospective episode last year. It's good to be back. It's a new year. Same show. Uh, off to a bit of a rocky start, to be honest. I, I gotta say, I, I bit off way more than I could chew, uh, in the time I allowed myself for the now traditional first episode of the year, 10 year retrospective episode. Um, I should have seen it coming. I really should have seen it coming. Uh, and I didn't, or, or I forgot that I did. The, the most accurate way to say it is I saw this coming last year. And kind of warned myself, well, you'd better, you better give yourself more time in, uh, you know, for the 2009 retrospective than you did for the previous ones. Just based on the pure fact that 2009 was the year that I, uh, really increased my output of the show. It was when I started fundraising and I, was partially laid off from my real job. And so that gave me more time to focus on the show and, and um, you know, encouraged me to put the effort in to try to turn the show into a job to supplement my, uh, you know, slashed income from the real job. And, uh, and so I started putting out more episodes and I just, it, there was just too much to listen to. I started prepping for that show in about mid December and for next year, I clearly need to start in mid-November at least. So here we are back in the present. And so what you're probably guessing is, oh, no, Jay did it again. He didn't think far enough in advance. He didn't get started in time. So now he's falling behind. Not true. You just heard me say that I needed to get my research started by at least mid-November. I was way ahead of the game. We were getting started. I had a small team of volunteers helping me out. We were going through stuff back as early as August, I think. So I was way ahead of the game. Then when it came to production, I gave myself enough time, should have been able to put it together in a week or so after the holidays. What I didn't account for was uh, what I'm what I'm describing as a uh, perpetual rake in the face scenario. So there's this old episode of The Simpsons where uh, Sideshow Bob, voiced by Kelsey Grammer, you know, he's always trying to catch Bart Simpson and kill him. I forget why. He just uh, always has that idea. And, you know, 20 years ago or so, there was an episode of The Simpsons where there was a running gag about Bob always uh, stepping on a rake and it, you know, popping up and hitting him in the face. 
And in, in one of his final scenes, he's actually surrounded by rakes in all directions. And every step he takes, he gets another rake in the face. That's kind of how the, this week has gone for me. You know, I, I had the, the major operating system update that took, you know, half a day to deal with and, and sort through all the bugs that, uh, you know, that ended up affecting my workflow and, you know, and then there was the day that I was doing some work at a, at a coffee shop on a public Wi-Fi. And even though I use a VPN for privacy's sake, I'm pretty sure I got hacked and had to, you know, wipe one of my devices entirely. So, you know, that was another about three quarters of a day wasted dealing with that. So it's just been an odd week for me. And these retrospective episodes are a pretty heavy lift as it is, you know, when, when things are running smoothly. So I, I am hard at work on the 2010 retrospective episode, a full episode for everyone, a bonus episode with a whole bunch more stuff for members. I find these episodes absolutely fascinating. I hope you do too. And so in the meantime, since I have not quite put the finishing touches on this 2010 retrospective, what I want to share with you is sort of along these lines. It's the bonus episode from 2009, full of absolute gems that wouldn't fit in the uh, in the main 2009 episode. So the vast majority of you will not have heard this before, and, and it'll be a nice teaser to set up for the 2010 episode. And with all the talk of retrospective episodes, it makes me really grateful that here in the present, we've been having a really slow news week. So it makes me feel like I haven't been missing out on anything, uh, spending all this time focusing on research from 10 years ago. So without any further ado, uh, here is the bonus episode of Honorable Mentions from the retrospective from 2009, which is both very old but also very probably new to you. This is the Honorable Mentions episode of 2009 Retrospective. So if you heard the, the big show already, it's a, it's a dark year. Um, I mean, I, I, I suppose most years are, are fairly dark, but I mean, there's a lot because it, we were really dealing with the hangover of George W. Bush. We were dealing with the hangover of the economy still being in a particularly bad place. We're dealing with the hangover of, you know, Dick Cheney going around praising torture on a regular basis, like really dark stuff. So hopefully future years will be a little uh, less horrific. But for the, uh, for today's honorable mentions, of course, we gotta, we gotta dip back into the darkness. So because everyone always says they would rather have the bad news first. I'm going to give you the bad news first, and it's going to get sort of progressively better as the show goes on. So we're going to start with uh, Rachel Maddow talking about the SEER program, just give a little bit more uh, background on it. Good good to know what that's all about and how it led to our torture program, uh, followed by more Rachel Maddow when she gives just a, a timeline summary of the torture memos and the fallout and, and all that. So just a nice, uh, nice concise way to understand the whole story. And, uh, and then I have a couple of clips from the young Turks that'll follow where, uh, you know, I, we already had Dick Cheney talking on the main show, praising torture, honorable mention. Let's go ahead and throw in Liz Cheney, who seems to just be trying to prove that she can be at least as 
if not more evil than her father. And uh, another Young Turks clip where the sort of shock jock gets waterboarded as a you know publicity thing and to try to prove that it's not really torture. We'll see how that works out. And uh, and, and then one clip that sort of fits that theme. Uh, that I don't know. I'll I'll just have Rachel Maddow explain it to you. Cheney, like I forgot this this little bit of news about Cheney. Like I kind of remembered all the things he did. I forgot about a lot of the stuff that he tried to do. So we'll run through all these and then discuss the next section. Sometimes in the Korean War, for example, American prisoners of war were subjected to interrogations that were not just designed to get information out of them. They were designed to get propaganda. They were techniques designed to elicit false confessions to get Americans to say they had done all sorts of horrible things and now they had seen the light and they were siding with the people who were holding them prisoner. John McCain famously was subjected to those techniques for those purposes when he was held prisoner in Vietnam. To fight back, the U.S. military designed a program called SEER, Survival Evasion Resistance Escape, S-E-R-E. American troops would be subjected under controlled conditions to the things that might be done to them by a foreign enemy to get false confessions to use for propaganda. So those techniques, if they were captured and these things were done to them, those techniques wouldn't be a surprise. They'd have some hope of putting up some resistance. Today's declassified congressional report confirms in detail that even before we had captured any high-value al-Qaeda suspects after 9-11, geniuses at the upper echelons of the Bush administration decided that they would use SEER techniques to develop a new American interrogation program. From the report, quote, senior officials approved the use of interrogation techniques that were originally designed to simulate abusive tactics used by our enemies against our own soldiers and that were modeled in part on tactics used by the communist Chinese to elicit false confessions from U.S. military personnel. In other words, the Bush administration developed an interrogation program from the techniques that were used on American prisoners of war to get false confessions out of them. Hmm. What could possibly go wrong? Over the past three months, there has been a steady stream of new information released about the Bush administration's torture program. The dots started to connect all the way up to the office of the former vice president of the United States. Within three months after the attacks on 9-11, the Bush administration began making the case for invading Iraq. Because Iraq, they said, was connected to al-Qaeda. Vice President Cheney went on Meet the Press and said that Mohammed Atta, the lead 9-11 hijacker, met with Iraqi officials before the attack. What we now have uh, that's developed since you and I last talked, Tim, of course, was that report that uh, has been pretty well confirmed, that he did go to Prague and he did meet with um, a senior official of the Iraqi intelligence service in Czechoslovakia last April, several months before the attack. It's been pretty well confirmed, said the vice president. In fact, that report turned out to be false. But we now know that something else was going on in secret, inside government, while Dick Cheney was making those public pronouncements, like that one from December 2001. According to the Senate Armed Services Committee chairman, Carl Levin, as far back as December 2001, the Pentagon was seeking information from the agency that runs the SEER program. The SEER program trains U.S. troops to resist the kinds of torture that were used by communist forces to get false confessions from American troops for use in propaganda. 
By July, the people who ran the SEER program had written to the Defense Department warning the Pentagon explicitly that it would be a mistake to base an interrogation program on SEER techniques, since they were not known to produce reliable or accurate information. Despite that warning, the Bush Justice Department signed off on the techniques the very next month. At that time, U.S. officials are questioning their first known high-value detainee, Abu Zubaydah. Through normal FBI interrogation techniques, Zubaydah is spilling all sorts of information. He identifies Khalid Sheikh Mohammed as the mastermind of 9-11. He tells of a supposed dirty bomb plot leading to the arrest of Jose Padilla. He's singing. But what he's not providing is that link between Iraq and al-Qaeda. An order then comes from somewhere that Abu Zubaydah should be interrogated by other means. And in August 2002, Abu Zubaydah is waterboarded 83 times in one month. Despite the warning from the people who train American soldiers to survive waterboarding, that that technique was developed to produce false confessions. Now, at around the same time, October 2002, out in public, the Bush administration is stepping up the case to the American people that the link exists between Iraq and al-Qaeda. We know that Iraq and the al-Qaeda terrorist network share a common enemy, the United States of America. We know that Iraq and al-Qaeda have had high-level contacts that go back a decade. We've learned that Iraq has trained al-Qaeda members in bomb-making, in poisons, and deadly gases. The following month, in November of 2002, President Bush continued to hammer away at this Saddam al-Qaeda link. He's a threat not only with what he has, he's a threat with what he's done. He's a threat because he is dealing with al-Qaeda. Still unable to prove this link that they are now repeating over and over and over again, the Bush administration gets what they think could be a goldmine. On March 1st, 2003, they capture Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the mastermind of 9-11. By this point, the administration's march toward invading Iraq is unstoppable. And in that month, the same month of the invasion, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is waterboarded 183 times, six times a day. And while he admits to everything from kidnapping the Lindbergh baby to shooting JFK on the grassy knoll, KSM fails to provide one thing the Bush administration desperately needs at that moment. The White House was launching its invasion of Iraq without any clear evidence that Iraq had anything to do with 9-11. On March 20th, 2003, the United States invaded Iraq. They're still waterboarding Khalid Sheikh Mohammed at that time. Shock and awe, the war begins. The Bush White House has two huge problems on its hands. One, it still hasn't proven a link between Iraq and al-Qaeda. And two, it needs to find the weapons of mass destruction that they said were in Iraq. Enter Charles Delfer, a former UN weapons inspector who was sent to Iraq after the invasion to help locate those weapons. In April of 2003, the month after the invasion, Delfer is involved in the questioning of a high-ranking Iraqi who was an intelligence officer for Saddam Hussein. Delfer and the rest of the team are getting information from that officer. He is, as they say, being cooperative. But at some point during the process, a message comes from Washington. Quote, some in Washington at very senior levels, not in the CIA, were concerned that the debriefing was too gentle. They asked if enhanced measures such as waterboarding should be used. Delfer says he considered the request to be reprehensible. He believed the rationale for the order was political. The request, it seemed, was to use waterboarding to find the Iraq-Al-Qaeda link, a link the White House had failed to prove for more than two years, despite even using methods known to provide false information. 
U.S. officials were being asked to waterboard not to prevent some imminent attack, but to justify an attack that had already been launched by us against Iraq. The bombshell news from former NBC News investigative producer Bob Windrum that the suggestion to torture this Iraqi source, to use torture not to prevent an attack, but to find that link, that suggestion came directly from the office of Vice President Cheney. I mean, I think we're seeing a situation where this administration, for some reason, uh, continues to release information that's helpful to the terrorists. You know, releasing the details about what was involved in the enhanced interrogation program, releasing the techniques involved in that program, helps the terrorists. It helps them train to those techniques. It takes those techniques completely out of the realm of possibility for future Good. presidents to use. So it was a very damaging thing to do. You know, set aside the fact that they stopped the policy, which, as I said, is their right. But so far, you know, we've seen that release. We've seen the, the concept that they're going to now release pictures mm -hmm. that are going to be harmful to American service members. And, you know, they're talking about now a new release of the Inspector General report. But they seem only to be interested in releasing things that um, really paint America in a negative light and um, don't give the American people a full picture of what went on. I'm curious what, what your dad thinks about the release of these other pictures and what you think about it because one of the things that is perhaps most unfortunate is that the, the Abu Ghraib pictures I think in many ways got grouped together with these interrogation techniques. Right. They were very separate incidences as you well know and he well knows. Lie. Uh, you know, one carried out by lower level people who were on a base and the other uh, done at the highest levels of the CIA. How, how, how much do you think it will stir up when these next set of pictures come out about all of that bad feeling? Well, I think that it is really appalling that the administration is taking this step. I haven't seen the pictures. I don't know what's in them. But clearly, you know, um, what they're doing is releasing images that show American military men and women in a very negative light. And I have heard from families of service members, from families of 9-11 victims, uh, this question about, you know, when did it become so fashionable for us to side really with the terrorists, you know, for us to put information out that hurts American soldiers. And, you know, President Obama uh, has a lot of sort of rhetoric about support for American military families and support for our men and women who are fighting overseas. But, you know, if he really cares about them, then he wouldn't be making such an effort, you know, to release photos that show them in a negative light. When did it become fashionable to help the terrorists? These people are sick, man. They think if you don't torture people that you're helping terrorists. These, didn't all of us grow up in a time when that was the most un-American thing? When America stood for human rights when we were the shining city on a hill? Now we have these monsters go on television really swinging their arms, hey, everybody in polite company, oh really, who would you like to torture? Oh, you think torture is great, and then if you don't do the torture, it helps the terrorists. And get a load of this, her logic is, if you release what we did, what my father authorized, it will hurt America and American troops. Well, wouldn't it make sense then for him not to have done it in the first place? Isn't the real problem that he authorized those, th those things? that are an embarrassment to America and hurt the country and hurt the troops? You think the fact that we're making it uh, available is the problem? Not that you did it in the first place? Can no one call her out on that insane logic? Look, you know, if they just kept it secret and hidden, how badly we tortured people, everything would be fine. But now they're going to help the terrorists by pointing out all the evil things that we did. There's a talk show host by the name of Mancow. Uh, some of you might have heard of him, Eric Mancow Muller. And he's a conservative talk show host, and uh, 
and he's been talking, as all the conservatives have, of, you know, waterboarding is not torture, it's a lot of, you know, baloney, they're just spraying some water on the guy's face, he'll be all right, these guys cut off our heads. In fact, he said, uh, quote, uh, I wanted to prove that it wasn't torture, they cut off our heads, we put water on their face. So I got voted to do this, apparently, on his show, uh, but I really thought, I'm going to laugh this off. So he decided he's going to get waterboarded and show people that it's not that big a deal. Uh, and he's 100% genuine about this, and he's going to hold a cow in his hand. You know how they hold something in their hand and let it go if something goes wrong. Uh, well, don't worry, you're going to get to see it because we've got the video of it. And uh, the guy who's doing it is Marine Sergeant Clay South, and he says normally the average person lasts about 14 seconds. And Mancow says, oh, I can go 30 seconds, etc. I'm not going to break, and we're going to prove this isn't torture. So it's an interesting experiment. Let's see how it turned out. Here it is. Mancow, there's a lot of water here. All right. Now, here's here's the thing. How long is the average person, can they take this? About 14 seconds. 14 seconds? That's the average. 14 seconds done properly, yeah. And uh, now, describe for our radio audience what's going to happen. We have this shirt or this towel here. We're going to put over his, his face, and but not his mouth. We're just going to put it slightly over his nose. That way he can get the, he can get most of the full effect. So he's, he's not going to be able to talk, really, but he'll make noises? Oh, he's probably going to moan like a little girl. What are the chances of you having a flashback and doing something really weird here to me? Oh, the chances are really good, man. We're back oh, good, good today. Now, we've got to get your face covered here, here. All right. Here we go. We're going to get it nice and wet. He's dunking the, uh, the cloth in a bucket of water now. Yeah. Okay. Get ready to put it over your face, okay? Okay. All right. It's going over man's face. Can you cover my mouth, too? No. We want to see you scream. We want to see you scream. All right. All right, we're coming up here. All right, EMT Rossi standing by. All right. All right, good luck, my friend. Don't move your head, okay? One. going to hold my nose? Yeah, we're, 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 I'm holding your nose. I'm holding his nose as he speaks, okay? okay? Move down a little. You're squeezing the top of my nose. There you okay, go. Okay, there we go. Well, I have, I, have, I have to get over here that way. Can, All right. I can get a good grip. All right, here's the bucket of water in his hand. Right. The sergeant is over man cow's head. We're going to do it on five, okay? Okay. One, two, I lied. Hey! Ooh. Oh, water's All right, that's it. That's it. All right. Oh, oh God. Man cow is soaked. Oh. Man cow is soaked. We all got a little water on him. How you doing, buddy? All right. Oh, Jesus. Uh, you're soaked, man. How do you feel? You it's, want the EMT? No, no, no. The EMT's here. No, no, it's okay. It is. Mr. Brett. I'm fine. It is way worse than I thought it would be. And I, it is way worse than I thought it would be. Would and that's no joke. Would you consider that torture? Look, all that's been done to this country, and I heard about water being dropped on someone's face, and I never considered torture. Even when I was laying there, I thought, this is going to be no big deal. I go swimming. It's going to be like being in the tub. It is such an odd feeling to have water poured down your nose and your mouth with your head back. It was instantaneous. I, I thought I could hold out 30 seconds, 60 seconds. It was instantaneous. And and uh, I don't want to say this. I do not want to say this. Absolutely torture. You do. Absolutely. I mean, that's drowning. So you felt like you were going to drown. When I was a kid, when I was a kid, I drowned. I was a drown. I, I drowned. Yeah. My, my, my yes, my brother. It's my brother pulled me out of this uh, out of this uh, this pool that I fell in, and and I had to be revived. And I remember the feeling, and that it is the feeling of drowning. That was a flashback to your childhood. There. I, it, worse than that. I mean, it was. 
Yeah, you look you look shaken. You look shaken. You, you, your hands are shaking a bit. Uh, I can see your hands shaking, and you're absolutely soaked. Your hair, your shirt, are just completely soaked, and your eyes. Uh, you uh, you look pale. I thought I could hold out, and it was instantaneous and horrific. And I really uh, look. I wouldn't have done this if if I knew it was going to be this bad. I would not have done it. See, look, I think that's powerful because a lot of guys have done this already. Christopher Hitchens did it, a Playboy uh, reporter did it, and, but they were either unsure of how it was going to turn out or they thought maybe it is torture or, or some of them thought it already is torture. Mankow came in guns blazing that it was not torture. And it took him six seconds and he was done. Okay, okay, it's definitely torture. Now, Remember, before they started, he's like, oh, could you move your hand down a little bit, telling the interrogator, etc. Now imagine, you're, there's, you don't tell the interrogator to move his hand here or there, and you're stripped naked, and you've already gone through the, uh, like all these different things that they've done to you, whatever it is, sleep deprivation and the stress positions, and you've already pulled your hair out, and you're a mess, and they got you in a hood, and they take it out, and then they do it not once like that. Look at how messed up he got in six seconds. They do it a hundred and eighty-three times. Mankow was like, oh, it's definitely not torture. Turned into, it's definitely torture in six seconds. Imagine how you feel on a hundred and eighty-three times. So, like, this debate is over, man. Everybody who's ever been waterboarded, every one of them, ranging from people who thought it was to people who thought it wasn't, to Jesse Ventura, who did it for the SEER program, and the list goes on and on. Every single one of them says, it's definitely torture. Some of those guys who did it as an experiment, they say they're still having nightmares over it. The New York Times reports that in 2002, Vice President Dick Cheney argued that U.S. troops should be dispatched to Buffalo, New York, to arrest terrorism suspects. Why use the military and not just the police, the FBI, like we normally do? Well, in the words of the Times, the suggestion was Mr. Cheney's strategy for, quote, testing the Constitution. Even though active duty troops hadn't been deployed in the U.S. for law enforcement since the Civil War, even though using our own military to arrest Americans on American soil is so blatantly illegal that it causes the Posse Comitatus Act to spontaneously combust in protest, Mr. Cheney argued it would still be worth a try worth testing it to see how it would work out. According to the Times, quote, several top Bush aides argued firmly against the proposal to use the military and, quote, Mr. Bush ended up ordering the FBI to make the arrests in Lackawanna. Now, the, the case that's being made in the press right now by lots of unnamed former senior Bush officials is not just Dick Cheney as bad guy, Bush as good guy. It's Cheney as bad guy, thankfully constrained by George W. Bush, the noted civil libertarian, equal protection, anti-cronyism defender of the rule of law. The George W. Bush legacy project is in full effect, and its strategy, it seems, is to blame Cheney for all the worst stuff. Next up, we move on to the financial crisis. And uh, this clip I'm playing, it's Essentially, it's, it's, uh, actually, I think it's the follow up. There's a very famous clip from, uh, The Daily Show in which Jon Stewart rips to shreds, uh, CNBC's Jim Cramer. And, uh, so he, I guess there was a, a clip in which, uh, Jon Stewart was pointing out that Jim Cramer was very much in favor of all of these institutions that then crashed 
very soon after he was promoting them. And uh, I guess Jim Cramer sort of criticized him for that or said it wasn't quite fair. So this is the follow-up in which The Daily Show responds to that criticism. But as you listen to this, just keep in mind that 10 years later, Jim Cramer is still working at CNBC, still producing mad money. Like, I cannot believe that the financial pundits who were around before the crash and didn't see it coming and clearly had no idea what they were talking about are still around. And and one more note, I, I, I wish I could, you know, pull up the, the data on this instantly, but I'm pretty sure I remember a study was done where they, they went back through the archives of Jim Cramer's show and they did an analysis of all of the stocks that he was promoting and ran, you know, like a simulation. If you had only invested based on his advice, how would you have done? And I'm pretty sure it, it came out that you would have done worse than just the absolute average of the stock market. If you just invested in everything, said, I'll just rise and fall with the entire market, Jim Cramer's advice would have had you doing worse than that. And, um, you know, on one hand, that's an indictment of Jim Cramer. On the other, it's definitely an indictment of CNBC for uh, continuing to employ Jim Cramer. But really, all of the st- statistics we know, all the information we know, is that that's not abnormal. Jim Cramer is actually normal in that respect. Almost no one beats the average uh, of the market. I mean, so without getting like into the details and getting all wonky about it, um, it's just absurd that anyone listens to someone like Jim Cramer uh, at all. Like any anyone like him shouldn't listen to any of them. But Jim Cramer in particular, <laughs> it just seems like a, a, a profoundly bad choice. As you may recall, last Wednesday, we devoted uh, a portion of this program to a fair-minded, reasoned critique of uh, the network CNBC. Here's a quick clip. Uh, you. I still got it. Apparently, this finely honed analysis has been making the rounds of the blogonet, the intersphere, the uh, twitscape. People think we did this uh, because CNBC's Rick Santelli, pictured here, canceled on our program. Not so. We specifically prepared that segment to air before Rick Santelli was to come on as a guest to give our interview a little more of what the French call uh, le discomfort. <laughs> so that was something that, that we were uh, hopefully going to do with him on the program. He didn't come, but that wasn't why we do it. Uh, so so I'm absolutely would still be very happy to talk about CNBC with Mr. Santelli or any of the personalities on their financial shows, uh, whether it be Jim Cramer, uh, Maria Bartiromo, anyone from the cast of Five Ball Guys who make noise about money, uh, CNBC's famed Money Monkey, we'd be happy to talk to him, or my go-to guru for all things finance, the stock-picking chicken. He's part of the crew at Smart Wampum. Listen, I'd even take the gang from Cudlow and the man with an ass for a face. So, by the way, that guy totally looked better before he shaved his beard. And, of course, my dream would be to talk to the host for my favorite CNBC show, How Are Your Stocks Doing with Rutger Hauer? Mainly focuses on the international market. Did you see him break down last Friday? I've 
seen things you people wouldn't believe. I guess that's a sell. Uh, unfortunately, we haven't heard a thing from CNBC. Although Jim Cramer did write an article for MainStreet.com complaining that we had unfairly used a video clip out of context to make it look like he recommended buying Bear Stearns stock a week before it collapsed. Well, we went back to the tape to listen. Should I be worried about Bear Stearns in terms of liquidity and get my money out of there? No, no, no. Bear Stearns is fine. Do not take your money out. This is really, if there's one takeaway other than a plus 400 somebody, Bear Stearns is not in trouble. Okay, I was wrong. (laughs) Actually, it's true. He wasn't saying to buy Bear Stearns. He was simply saying that if Bear was your broker or that your money was at Bear, your money would not disappear. He was not addressing the value of holding Bear stock. So, uh, Jim Cramer, I apologize. Uh, That was out of context. Technically, uh, you were correct. You weren't suggesting uh, to buy Bear Stearns. Uh, That was something that you did five days earlier in your buy or sell segment. I believe in the Bear franchise. You know what? It's 69 bucks. I'm not giving up on the thing. Yeah. <laughs> of course, while Kramer wasn't giving up on Bear at 69, 11 days later, the stock market was more comfortable with it at two. <laughs> but it's all sort of equivocal. Uh, you know, it's on. I'm reiterating. I like Bear at 60s. I like Bear in 70s. He's not saying literally, I'm asking you to buy Bear Stearns. For that, you'd have to go back a full seven weeks before the stock completely collapsed. I'm asking uh, people who are uh, watching this video to buy Bear Stearns. Now, that was seven weeks before it collapsed. In the interest of context, continue. I'm asking uh, people who are uh, watching this video to buy Bear Stearns. Now, uh, Bear Stearns acts much better than it should. Uh, Now, that's just intuition. Uh, and I don't want to put too much faith in intuition, but I have had good intuition over 29 years of investing. And I just think that this one has um, a, a very big upside, very limited downside here. Uh, it, it is, uh, I think that that last quarter, they've staunched the losses. Um, they're very good at cutting their losses at Bear, but the but Bear, I believe, is for sale, and I think there are many buyers. Could be a bidding war. Yes. All right, Jim Cramer, you said right, it here. Bear. Wall Street Confidential. Bye, Bear. you! Next up, just a quick little vignette into the healthcare debate. This is just a particularly nice little exchange between a Democratic senator and a conservative healthcare opponent. Uh, And also, it's Al Franken, and so it's sort of Nice to remember what it was like back when Al Franken was sort of a genuinely good senator, uh, you know, before things went downhill. But uh, th- this is when he was a freshman and he was brand new in the Senate. Uh, the the story about him in 2009 is that his election was so close that it took an incredibly long time for him to actually be seated as the senator for the election to be uh, confirmed. So. He he should have been there, but was out for six months, nine months, something like that. So eventually he he gets in. And so, I mean, this conversation, the healthcare debate was like one of the first things he did. Zal Franken, they're having a hearing about bankruptcy, how medical debt can lead to bankruptcy. 
and that perhaps that we should change the way that the system is structured now. In fact, uh, this is a shocking fact. Uh, 62, nearly 62% of all U.S. bankruptcies in 2007 were due to health care costs. Can you imagine that? 62% of all bankruptcies because of health care problems. And of those people, by the way, 78% of them were insured, and it still didn't help them. Okay? So obviously it's a major issue, and there's a huge connection there. And they had a number of people who testified, including Elizabeth Edwards for uh, Center for American Progress, etc. They also had a conservative testify, of course, a senior fellow, Diana Fricot Roth, uh, and she testified that if we move toward a European-style system of universal health care, that that would actually increase bankruptcies. Now, if 62% of our bankruptcies are because of medical costs, wow, how high must Europe's be if she thinks it's going to increase the number of bankruptcies? Well, Al Franken was a little incredulous about that, too, and he asked her a series of devastating questions. Let's watch. Dr. Uh, uh, got Roth, um, I think we disagree on whether uh, health care reform, uh, the health care reform that we're talking about now in Congress should pass. And you said that um, kind of the way we're going will increase bankruptcies. I, I, want, you, I want to ask you how many um, uh, bankruptcies because... <coughs> Of medical crises were there last year in in Switzerland. I don't have that number in front of me, but I could find yeah, out. And I can tell you how many it was. Get back to you. It, it's zero. Oops. <laughs> Do you know how many medical bankruptcies there were last year in France? I don't have that number, but I can get back to you if you like. Yeah, the number is zero. <laughs> you know how many were in Germany? From the trend of your questions, I'm assuming the answer is zero, but I don't know the precise amount, and I would have mm -hmm. to get back to you. Well, you're very good. You're very fast. The point is, is that I think we need to go in that direction, not in the opposite direction. Thank you. Do you know the cancer survival rates in those countries? You know, you've, you've picked on one... And, and if you look at that study, did you know that we pick easily, much more easily survivable cancer rates? So if you want to start getting into deep, digging, digging deep in the studies, that study isn't legitimate. I've heard that before. That's because we find easily survivable cancers to count as ones that we survive. So if you want to, you know, you can cherry pick stuff to find one little place where somebody says our system works better than the French or the Germans. But I, we're talking about bankruptcy here today. And <laughs> the fact of the matter is, you're saying that if we go more to a French system or a Swiss system, that we'll have increased bankruptcies, but the fact is they don't have bankruptcies, and we do for medical care. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I include that second part in there because she thinks, oh, I'm going to be a clever little person, and I'm going to throw out this random statistic that probably Al Franken, the comedian, doesn't know, and I'll distract people from what the actual conversation is. Yeah, that didn't work out for you because he did know it. Next up, one little honorable mention, a criticism of Obama. Of course, it turned out there are a lot 
honestly, there was a lot more criticism of Obama from the year 2009 than I even thought there was. Um, I, I sort of thought that a lot of people took until like 2010 to start really being disappointed in him. Uh, and on that note, how weird was it to hear Rachel Maddow of all people be like a lion criticizing Obama? I, I hadn't heard that side of Rachel Maddow in a really long time. And, and I mean, to be honest, I sort of stopped following her, her show. I mean, for a variety of reasons, not, not purely based on content, but like, the time available I had, I had to prioritize. And so I ended up deprioritizing her to focus on other things. But, uh, so, you know, so I haven't heard as much from her in the past few years, but I was really surprised hearing those old clips that Rachel Maddow was just going after him, comparing him to Bush, saying everything, he, you know, not everything, but you know, things he was doing were like starkly unconstitutional. So, uh, that was refreshing. This clip, on the other hand, is rather mild in comparison. Uh, that's why it's only an honorable mention. On to another thing that they're holding the uh, Democrats responsible for. Uh, final thing here. I'm sorry, they're holding Obama responsible to for. Uh, they said, the House said, hey, wait a minute now. Uh, we're not going to let you get away with signing statements. And you said you wouldn't do any. And Barack Obama did a signing statement on the last bill, uh, the Defense uh, uh, Appropriations Bill. We told you about this. He said, yeah, the parts I like, I'm going to do exactly as you say. The parts I don't like, uh, I don't think is within your authority. And within my authority, I'm going to go ignore that part of the law. Now, on the substance, I agree with Obama. On whether he can do a signing statement, hell no. If you didn't like that parts of the bill, and I didn't like that parts of the bill, then you should have vetoed it. That's how the Constitution is set up. If you didn't veto it, you can't do a signing statement saying, hey, I'm not going to listen to that part of the bill. How do I know this? A guy named Barack Obama told me all about it. Remember this from the campaign? Let's go to clip number 10. When Congress offers you a bill, do you promise not to use presidential signage to get your way? Yes. Let me just explain for those who are unfamiliar with this issue. Uh, you know, we've got a, a, a government designed by the founders so that there'd be checks and balances. You don't want a president who's too powerful or a Congress who's too powerful or a court who's too powerful. Everybody's got their own role. Congress's job is to pass legislation. The president can veto it or he can sign it. Yes. But what George Bush has been trying to do as part of his effort to accumulate more power in the presidency is he's been saying, well, I can basically change what Congress passed by attaching a letter saying, I don't agree with this part or I don't agree with that part. I'm going to choose to interpret it this way or that way. Uh, that's not part of his power. But this is part of the whole theory of George Bush that he can make laws as he's going along. Uh, I disagree with that. I taught the Constitution for 10 years. I believe in the Constitution, and I will obey the Constitution of the United States. We're not going to use signing statements as a way of doing an end run around Congress. All right? Oopsie doopsie. Uh, my old civics teacher in eighth grade, Mr. Rollins, said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, Obama doesn't have absolute power here, but 
And a little bit of power he's got is apparently corrupting him a little bit because he did a signing statement exactly like he promised he wouldn't do. How clear was candidate Obama? And then I remember people said, oh, wait till he gets into power. He'll want to also do some of the uh, executive branch uh, expansion that Dick Cheney is, you know, authorized under his watch. He'll want to take advantage of that as well. And he'll like that power. So he'll do things like signing statements. And I said, well, I don't know about that. I mean, come on, he's a constitutional law professor, and he was absolutely clear about it. Oopsie doopsie. Apparently not clear enough. Obama better go back and look at his old tapes, because that signing statement, uh, whether you agree with it or not, in, in terms of the content of it, uh, as a matter of the Constitution, is unacceptable. These next two clips are about uh, Glenn Beck, and apologies up front for anyone who just hates listening to conservatives be crazy for the sake of listening to conservatives be crazy. Uh, but I'm playing them as a reminder to, uh, of what a like profoundly influential figure Glenn Beck of all people was back 10 years ago. I mean, he's, he, he, uh, I'm not sure if he was on Fox News in, in 2009. This clip is going to be from his radio show, but he ended up on Fox News and then, I mean, had like the highest ratings, was incredibly influential for the conservative movement and, and has since faded away. He got kicked off Fox and he was doing his own thing on the blaze. And then I think the blaze was going so badly that it, the last I heard it just got purchased by some larger, um, conservative entity. So he's, he's sort of fading away. I mean, his influence is, is, you know, at a low ebb at the moment, but in 2009, he, he was making waves and, uh, actually now I think, of course he, he was on Fox news. He was part of the tea parties and then did his own major rally on the mall. Um, I, amazing. So even though we don't like to listen to him, it's important to uh, remember that this was an influential person at the time. This Glenn Beck clip you're going to get from his radio show starts with his usual madness, and he seems a little, you know, high-strung, if you will, and a little crazy in the beginning. And it only gets worse and worse. And by the end, I don't know if those sounds he's making are human or not. So I don't want to overhype it, but I had a lot of fun watching this and listening to this. So here's uh, Glenn Beck on health care. Listen to his rational arguments. Hi, Kathy. Go ahead. Hi, Kath. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Glenn. I think you better pick your head up and put it back on your shoulders because it's yes. rolling all over the ground right now. Yes. We've got people out there that are really sick that do need health care. Oh, and my when goodness. people like you... Yes. Turn around and mm -hmm. subject people to this kind of rhetoric that oh don't God. have insurance oh. because they Wait. can't afford it and they've been laid off. I know. Where do they get it? Where Actually, do they get it? You know, it? your family, let me yes. tell you something, Glenn. Yes. Obviously, nobody uh -huh. in your family has had an illness that they no, couldn't no, My family has for. never, ever had an illness. You're right. And anybody, you, you know what, Kathy, you are so right. No, no, no. Oh, that they couldn't pay for? Let me just tell you something. You are right. I read in the story all the time about the people who are dying on the streets because they can't go to a hospital and get health care. You're exactly right. We are letting people die left and right in this country. Afford anymore. Oh, we can't they afford can't anymore. So you must, of course, be. Going broke. Oh, they They're can't afford it. Right, so you're right, and that's why the country can afford it. The country can afford it. Don't worry about that going broke. 
Don't worry about that. industrial country in this world in this that world. doesn't have health care. What the hell and is And we are the only country in the world where leaders come from every other country to get health care when they can't get the right kind of health care in their own country. We have presidents. We have prime ministers. We have speakers of the parliament in Australia that can't get the prostate treatments and have to come to this country to get it. So you're right, you're right. We should adapt all of those things. And Canada has a great health care. That's why people are suing. That's why in Canada they have a lottery. They have a lottery system. Who gets to go see a doctor this month in Canada? Go ahead. How about the Netherlands, Glenn? How about the Netherlands? Yeah, how about France and Italy where you just go in and sign a in paper Fran you're right. and the doctors you don't have to so fight with the insurance companies? Tell me, Kathy, about the insurance program that they do have in France. Tell, it, tell me about it. You, uh, there are people that go over there mm -hmm. and they are on vacation. If they uh -huh. have a problem... Uh -huh. All they have to do is walk into the clinics or the hospitals and sign their name. The doctors oh do not have to be bothered signing insurance forms. So, in other words, so in other words a person... Hang on, I want to make sure I understand. So a non-citizen can go over to a hospital and walk in and get emergency treatment. That never happens here. I'm asking you a logical question. I'm giving you a logical answer. You don't have logic. You're right. Where's your logic? What would you do? I'm asking you, what would you do to change this health care system for the better? After all, every time you people bring up costs, you don't care about the trillions of dollars to bail out the banks and all the, uh, the, the credit card companies. Kathy, get off my phone! Get off my phone, you little pinhead! I don't care. You people don't care about the trillions. I'm going to lose my mind today. Too late. Now, by 9-12, Glenn doesn't just mean the day after 9-11. It also stands for his nine principles and 12 values that will move us beyond the complacency we felt on 9-10. And beyond the fear we felt on 9-11 to the compassion we felt on 9-12. And hopefully we'll all eventually get to the way Glenn felt on 9-9 of 2005. This is horrible to say. And I wonder if I'm alone in this. You know, it took me about a year to start hating the 9-11 victims' families. I don't hate all of them. I hate about probably about 10 of them. But when I see, you know, 9-11 victim family on television or whatever, I'm just like, oh, shut up. I'm so sick of them because they're always complaining and we did our best for them. Good point. The 912 project is not for families directly affected by 911. Just people building their careers on it. Now, Glenn These people are with you, Glenn. Glenn laid out exactly what he wanted and why. Yesterday was exactly six months to 9-12. I'm working on a couple of projects that are going to take me at least six months to do. Saturday, September 12th. I'll share with you what I've been working on and you show me what you've done. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just love my country and I fear for it. 
I'm sorry. I just love Glenn Beck's sanity. And I fear for it. Next up, we get to get away from politics entirely and listen to what's always interesting, listening to the experts speculate about what technology is doing in any given moment and making some predictions about where it's heading and the effects it's having on people. Because obviously we know more now than we did 10 years ago. So you can kind of see how much they get right. And uh, I, I don't know that much of what they say is necessarily wrong, but it's it's incomplete by today's standards. Five weeks ago on the British program Newsnight, the famously relentless host Jeremy Paxman tackled the issue that is eating away at good parents everywhere. I've got a child who uses a social networking site like Facebook or Twitter or something. Who hasn't, you might say? Well, their brain's being rotted, or at least that's more or less what the Daily Mail claimed this morning. The paper was citing Baroness Susan Greenfield, who told us today that repeated exposure to screens could rewire the brain. It follows if the human brain is so impressionable, if the environment is changing, then the brain might change too. There is no the Baroness, a neuroscientist at the University of Oxford, willingly conceded that the problem, in the absence of any actual proof, was still theoretical, but then caused a ruckus by just as willingly speculating on the psychological damage posed by long hours spent online. A shorter attention span, an emphasis on process on the experience of the moment rather than content of an identity that needs to be bolstered up with Twitter and uh, perhaps an, an increased recklessness. Greenfield says the internet is stunting our social development. A report in the British magazine Biologist claims it's making us lonely. An article in last summer's Atlantic asks, is Google making us stupid? So what is the Internet doing to our brains? Inquiring minds want to know. Two years ago, writer John Lawrence suggested in the Canadian magazine The Walrus that the Internet is probably making our minds more inquiring, and not in a good way. I came across some studies that had identified these two terrifically descriptive terms, informivores and information foraging, when you're working online. There is this craving for information, it's difficult to know when to stop. And you can quickly come to the conclusion that you can go on link by link by link ad infinitum. Down the rabbit hole. Down the rabbit hole. You're always waiting to get closest to some ideal of a perfect state of information. And, you know, in a pre-digital, pre-internet environment, you could get to that place fairly quickly. Whereas with the internet, I do think that the horizon is much further off and yet you still crave that. And I do think that's the addictive nature of it. The byproduct of information addiction is chronic distraction. And though there is as yet no hard data on the impact of the Internet, there is a vast body of work devoted to the consequences of constant interruption. Most of that research predates the Internet, and yet interruption defines our digital lives. We continually break away from one task to attend to another. An email, an instant message, a pop-up, a purchase, a quick detour offered by an intriguing link. We call it multitasking. I would say that we don't actually multitask. 
we serial task. Frank Russo, director of the Science of Music Auditory Research and Technology Lab at Ryerson University, says that if we could do two tasks at once, we wouldn't crash the car while talking on the phone. What we really do is flip back and forth, constantly breaking our mental flow. So we might be entertaining a thought and we might be trying to think about, well, how does this fit with other things I know? How can I advance what I'm looking at and get to the next step? All of that hard cognitive work is taken away once we get that pop-up message. So if we're doing something that involves some sort of complicated thought, developing an argument of any kind, it's not going to be as efficient if we have constant disruptions. So does that mean that Google is making us stupid? We've been getting more intelligent as assessed by standard intelligence tests progressively over the last 50 years. So that's the part I don't get, I have to say. Somehow we're getting more intelligent, but it's also clear to me, just anecdotally from my own experience, that people seem to have less tolerance for complex arguments. I don't know how those things add up. So as I said, kind of incomplete. Like I, I don't think there were any mentions of filter bubbles or algorithms, the way algorithms try to figure out what we want to see and then only show us the things we already like, which puts us in a bubble. There was some talk about, you know, maybe social media makes people uh, more lonely. They, they like had this little nugget of data, like it seems like it's making people more lonely. But how could that be? Because people say they use social media and still go see people in real life. But like they didn't know anything about how uh, social media encourages people to uh, think that other people's lives are better than they really are and then making themselves uh, feel bad about their own lives by comparison or the constant feelings that the fear of missing out concept that if you're constantly seeing people posting about all the fun things they're doing, you, you can constantly have this desire to be doing something else to be invited to whatever's happening. There's a whole lot of layers to the way uh, social media impacts people. And, and I think they had like a really rudimentary understanding of it at the time. Uh, okay. Next up, this one was really interesting. So uh, there was a study done about how conservatives saw Stephen Colbert and I actually heard two different clips about this from 2009, one earlier in the year, one a little bit later. This one, this is the one that's later because they sort of correct some of what was said in the first one. So the way it was misconstrued often is that conservatives flat out did not know that Stephen Colbert was doing satire. They would watch the Stephen Colbert show, uh, you know, the, uh, the Colbert rapport. And think like this is straight conservative comedy and that that's how a lot of liberals at the time read the news. That's how they interpreted it. That's how I remembered it actually. And this clip complicates it. It's, it's, that's not entirely wrong, but it's, that's pretty wrong. And so this puts in a lot more nuance to that discussion. Stephen Colbert of Comedy Central's Colbert Report plays the character of a narcissistic right-wing blowhard. A couple of weeks ago, when the National Organization for Marriage put out an ad warning of a looming storm of gay marriage, Colbert responded with an ad of his own. There's a storm gathering. A giant gay storm. 
Did you know that if all 50 states approve gay marriage, straight marriage becomes illegal? Yes, I heard that somewhere. But there is hope. Join the Colbert Coalition, a rainbow of proud people coming together in a commercial. Join us. As usual, Colbert wields satire like a blunt instrument. Or does he? National Organization for Marriage President Maggie Gallagher responded to the segment by writing, quote, I've always thought Stephen Colbert was a double agent pretending to pretend to be a conservative to pull one over Hollywood. Now I'm sure. Ohio State University's Heather Lamar is co-author of a study that actually found most conservatives do take Colbert's fake politics at face value. You might watch that and you might think that's hilarious. He's making fun of conservatives. Look how funny that is, which is what we found for liberals. However, if you're conservative, you might look at that and say, that's hilarious. He's using comedy to expose flaws or holes in liberal thinking. So both sides basically see what they want to see. But you haven't found that conservatives watching the show are too stupid to figure out that they're being made fun of. Right. This has been misinterpreted widely, actually, in the press to date. There is no question in anyone's mind, according to our results, that conservatives, in fact, do understand that it's satire. What's going on here is that even though conservatives understand he's parroting a conservative, they believe he's truly targeting liberal thinking. What I haven't seen much of is conservatives using Colbert-style satire to poke fun at liberals. Is there such an animal out there? Well, I haven't found one yet. Most conservatives who use satire, such as talk radio show hosts Glenn Beck, sometimes Rush Limbaugh, the problem is we already know as viewers where they stand. It doesn't work the same. So until we find somebody who remains in character, remains vague, remains ambiguous on and off camera, it will be very difficult to test these hypotheses and running in the opposite direction. So you mean it's on a technicality, the fact that he refuses to break character is what makes him a perfect Petri dish specimen for your research? Yes, but I think Stephen Colbert wouldn't call that a technicality. I think he would probably say that's a stroke of genius. I think this boils down to what the goal of the humorist is. Some people use satire as a means to make political statements. Other people use satire simply to entertain their audience. If Stephen Colbert's goal is simply to entertain his audience, he's extremely brilliant. He's the big tent entertainer. He's found a way to include all groups from all stripes. They can cast upon him anything they wish to see in his humor and interpret it for themselves as always making fun of someone else. This next one, it's going to jump right into the clip from uh, it's from Glenn Beck's show. And then but it's all being played from The Daily Show. And it's going to mostly speak for itself, but I'm just playing it because it is one of my favorite little moments from this era. Uh, 2009 is the era that keep your government hands off my Medicare. Like this is the era that comes from. And there was this, like, we were, we were exposing through the Obamacare debate, we were exposing the profound ignorance of a lot of people to not even understand what government programs are that, you know, 
that these programs exist and that they're run by the government. Like people might know they exist, but they don't know that they're government or they don't understand. Uh, I, it's hard to even wrap your mind around. Just, just listen. Are you saying you personally won't pay income tax anymore? There are programs that they're asking me to fund that I refuse to fund. We are a capitalistic society. Okay. I go into business. I don't make it. I go bankrupt. They're not going to bail me out. I've been on food stamps and welfare. Anybody help me out? No. No. I pulled myself up by the bootstraps and helped the government dispose of food and money. Did the government help me spend that money or chew and digest the subsidized food? No. It was all me. And apologies, I meant to introduce that clip better. Uh, I, I said it was from the Glenn Beck show by way of The Daily Show. What I, I also meant to include that that was uh, Craig T. Nelson, celebrity, you know, TV uh, person, Craig T. Nelson. He was coach back when I was a kid. More recently, he was like the dad on Parenthood, that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, just like a profound level of ignorance that uh, – like I said, it's hard to wrap your mind around. I mean, this this guy has been living. He's he was like sixty years old when he said that, and so he lived his whole life thinking to himself, "I was on food stamps and welfare or whatever," and thinking that he had to like pick himself up by his bootstraps because he was so downtrodden that he was on food stamps and welfare, and that to him that equated to no one helped me. It's uh, like, I don't even know what you do with those people. I, you guys been listening for a while. You, you know that I'm in favor of trying to understand people, trying to meet people where they are, understand their issues, uh, speak to them on their level. And it, it's hard to, it's hard to know where to start with something like other than to point out like, uh, actually those things you're mentioning, that's like the definition of someone helping you. That's that's society getting together and deciding, uh, hey, you, Craig T. Nelson, you need some help. Here's some free money. Okay. And now this last clip, um, I, there's, there's hardly any context needed. So uh, after the election, I mean, the, the conservatives, the Republican Party was at its lowest ebb in a long time. And uh, so they, there was this article written, it's called Pizza Party. Uh, the idea was that GOP leaders were going around, they had a pizza party or multiple pizza parties trying to, uh, you know, plan how to bring the party back from the brink of destruction. And, uh, and so I'm just pulling this tiny little snippet. The essence of the article is that, you know, they said a bunch of platitudes they didn't have any, you know, they, they were like ideas, but they weren't new ideas. They were like, hey, we should give more tax cuts or, hey, we should uh, like give people something they want. <laughs> Politics 101. So like those were the kinds of ideas uh, Mitt Romney and I, whoever else was, was coming up with. But this tiny little clip I'm going to play for you sparked a conversation that, that I want to tell you about. The conversation rarely moved into specifics. Cantor wants more dialoguing. One volunteer, Brian Summers, gave a pep talk, arguing that we need to give America something to say yes to. Romney painted the differences between Republicans and Democrats in Revolutionary-era terms. We are the party of the revolutionaries. They are the party of the monarchists. 
So I, f- I find that comment like hilarious on its face, uh, troubling maybe in its implications, but, but ultimately fascinating. I, you know, as I said, I'm always in favor of understanding where people are coming from, understanding what makes them tick. I think it makes me a better person or a better debater or just a more informed person to really understand where other people are coming from. And so I, as I said, I think it's hilarious and ridiculous on its face to imagine that conservatives see themselves as revolutionaries in any context, but it's come up more than once. I have heard conservatives uh, refer to themselves as the rebel alliance fighting against the the imperial Democrats, uh, you know, Star Wars reference, and then that much more direct to actual history. It's it's really fascinating, I, and I think. Um, I think there are a couple of reasons for it that, that I'm just, I'm sort of spitballing, but uh, the first is th- like the simplest, just the simplest, easiest one is any good things that happen in history, uh, people want to say I was on the side of the good thing. And not only uh, can I say now that I am in favor of that having happened, but I would have been in favor of it if I had been back then. So in order to believe that, you know, Republicans think that they were the ones who, uh, you know, abolished slavery just because the more liberal of the two parties was the Republican Party back then. And the, you know, all of the Southern racists were Democrats back then. So they think that label matters. So they, they, they love to try to take ownership of abolishing slavery. Similarly with the revolution, they, they say like conservatives clearly are the ones who would fight against an authoritarian, uh, you know, authority figure. Um, it, it absolutely like <laughs> strains the mind to imagine how a, a, like a party and a philosophy that is basically obsessed with, um, staunching dissent in every way, demanding fealty to authority figures would have been the movement at the time to rebel against the king. Like, I cannot imagine how how that group of people brings themselves to believe that concept. And so other than the really simple version that I already said, that they just want to associate themselves with anything good, uh, as everyone sort of does, my other one is that uh, conservatives have now, I mean, through decades of propaganda, they have just absolutely conflated the concept of conservatism with the concept of liberty. They think that to be conservative is to be in favor of liberty, to be anything other than conservative is to be opposed to liberty. And therefore, if they can project back to a time when their liberties were being threatened by a king that they would have been in favor of liberty then, and therefore they would be the revolutionaries. And, and then to, to twist the, the thinking further, they would then assume, okay, so if we're in favor of liberty and the left hates liberty, then I guess they would have loved being under the rule of the king because, it, and it gets back to that, that question I always uh, wish people would ask, please explain the perspective of your ideological opponent, 
Because there's no fucking way any conservative who who believes that they were part of the revolutionaries, there's no way they have any understanding of what the left thinks, that the left would be monarchists. It's uh, – I, I mean, I can't just – keep saying it's hard to believe or uh, impossible to wrap one's mind around. Um, so the, the last note is that what is sort of similar is the way, uh, so if I say that uh, they've conflated conservatism with liberty, I think they've done the same thing with capitalism and liberty or freedom or whatever term they decide to use. Again, like capitalism is an economic system democracies, uh, a political system. Freedom is a nebulous concept that means different things to different people, but generally uh, falls more under the, like, how do we rules our, rule ourselves? What rules do we put in place as society fits better under the uh, uh, political system conversation? But because they just have had this propaganda for decades and so many of them genuinely buy into their own bullshit that they just think like capitalism equals democracy. Capitalism equals freedom. Socialism equals, you know, not freedom. We're all going to uh, have our freedom taken away from us. Uh, all those sorts of things. So, um, I mean, no, no, like profound point to end on. Just, 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 the, I mean, Romney, of course, of all people saying that, um, it, it, it just sparked this conversation. Like what makes people twist themselves into knots to believe the things that they wish were true. And, um, and, and I and think that's just a few examples of, of how that ends up playing out. So that at last is, uh, is it for our, um, honorable mention bonus episode from 2009. Uh, we finally get to bring ourselves back into the present uh, going forward now. Uh, as always, I'd love to hear from you if you have thoughts on this or anything else. The number to dial, 202-999-3991. Uh, and again, just a note, thanks to all the volunteers who helped pull this retrospective episode together. Couldn't have done it without you guys. Uh, I, I reached out on Patreon, so I know you know, you guys are, are listening. So just want to drive that point home if I, if I hadn't already. Uh, and, and then finally, if you uh, want to get in touch, but not by voicemail, you can email me directly, j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks for listening. Stay awesome. Mm-hmm.